everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You're listening to episode number 25. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on October 7, 2018. So you're probably asking yourself, two episodes in one weekend? Yeah, that's right. Um, Next weekend, I'm heading off to my final trip of the year, hopefully. I'm going to Austin, Texas for a writer event. And I wanted to make sure you didn't wait too long for the next chapter of Bionic Bug, so I'm doing double duty this weekend. Um, So let's turn to what I think was the biggest tech story of last week. I always save the best for last. The Big Hack, How China Used a Tiny Chip to Infiltrate U.S. Companies, published on Bloomberg Business Week on October 4. If you've been following the news about China, you know that their government is making an aggressive push to acquire a technological edge, and they're using all sorts of tactics to do this. You're probably also aware of how the U.S. has outsourced production of a wide variety of goods to China, including electronics. So if this story is true, the implications are enormous for national security. So let, let, let me give you the gist. A U.S. company based in Oregon sells servers for storing data to their customers. The servers were produced by another company based in San Jose. The Oregon company sent a number of these servers to a third-party tester in Canada, and that's when they discovered microchips the size of a rice grain embedded in the servers. The company has, based in Oregon, has sold these servers to the Department of Defense, the CIA, the Navy, Amazon, and Apple. So these microchips, they allow hackers to install doors into networks and access data. This would be huge. If this is true, it's huge. Both Amazon and Apple refuted the report. And in any event, this article brings home the fact that if you didn't know this already, we are entering a whole new world of conflict, one that occurs in the digital world rather than the physical one. And it's time for us to wake up and get out of the matrix already. So let's turn to Bionic Bug. Let's, last week, Rob and Lara interviewed Ashton and learned more details about Fiddler's plans. However, Ashton was hesitate, hesitant to say too much. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 25, The Stakeout. Keeping one eye on the door of Anita's townhouse, Lar pretended to read a newspaper while sitting on a bench at the edge of a quaint city park in D.C.'s Petworth neighborhood. She contemplated the events of the previous day. The silver Honda she'd seen at Beatific Creations haunted her mind. It looked just like Anita's car. Her thoughts drifted to the interrogation. She shook her head in disbelief. Rob had prevented her from learning what Ashton knew about Cybershop, all for some useless video footage. Well, almost useless. After Rob pulled her from the interrogation room and dragged her to the FBI's video processing center, they'd watched the footage seized from the cameras at Beatific Creations. From an outdoor closed-circuit camera, they observed the black BMW peeling around the corner of the building and racing into the street, followed closely by the moving truck. The angle of the camera made it impossible to get a visual of anyone in the BMW, 
but they were able to see the license plate of the moving truck. Sanchez had offered to pull, offered to pull footage from nearby traffic cameras to see if they had had better luck identifying the driver of the BMW, but he'd also come up with nothing. To Rob's annoyance, Lara had asked the text to replay the video several times and demanded they stop every time something silver flashed across the screen. Finally, they were able to isolate a partial image of what she thought was the same silver Honda she'd seen idling on the street. Without the license plate, a full image of the vehicle, or images of its passengers, Rob dismissed her gut instinct that they should investigate further. Lara had a strong feeling the Honda belonged to Anita, and that she'd come along with Fiddler and Ashton to investigate Linda Maxwell. It infuriated her to think Rob wouldn't believe her without further evidence. Anita had mentioned she always took the day off from the medical practice on Mondays, and Lara had decided to conduct a stakeout. She hoped the doctor would also follow her biweekly ritual of picking up her father's mail and meeting him for coffee. If Anita met with her father, Lara could kill two birds with one stone. Perfect day for Operation Fiddler. Most people would have gone to work for the day, which made Lara sitting on a bench stick out like a sore thumb. The newspaper was not the most inconspicuous disguise, but she couldn't wait on her motorcycle or hide her face behind her smartphone. If Anita got a, even a quick glimpse, she'd recognize her immediately. A scrappy-looking man in his 20s with a yellow Labrador passed by her bench and gave her a strange look. Given the mid-morning hour and the treat bag around his waist, the man probably worked as a dog walker or trainer. But she couldn't take any chances on being recognized and raised the paper higher, hiding her face. Perusing the headlines, Lara waited patiently for Anita to leave her townhouse across the street. Lately, the news media were stoking fears across the country about the many technological changes looming on the horizon. The rise of artificial intelligence, the restructuring of commerce due to advances in 3D printing, and the emerging drone traffic control system had all recently captured the public's attention. Incessant media coverage only intensified speculation about a future war between humans and machines. Lara didn't understand all the hysteria. Most people wanted things to stay the same so they could remain in their safe little comfort zones. Even when reluctant to adopt certain types of new tech, she found the pace of change to be thrilling, like an old-school Wild West adventure. As if we can stop the pace of technological advances anyway, she laughed. No, that drone has left the station. And if it ever came to a war with Skynet... She was pretty certain the machines would win due to their superior aptitude for adaptation. Hearing a front door open and close across the street, Lara looked up to see Anita race down the front of stairs of her townhouse and climb into the back seat of a silver Honda, the same car from the street at Beatific Creations. I was right. The car gradually inched out from out of its parking spot. For such maneuvers, Lara knew the light detection and ranging sensors must be working hard to identify nearby obstacles on all sides and make the smallest corrections to avoid collision. Time to play ball. Lara got up from the bench, tucking the newspaper under her arm, and strode toward, toward her motorcycle parked only a few feet away. As the car proceeded slowly down the street, Lara snapped a photo of the license plate and put the newspaper in the seat compartment and then mounted her motorcycle. She put the bike in neutral and moved it into position. She waited until the Honda reached the next intersection before turning the ignition and winced at the loud rumble of her engine. That unmistakable noise was the number one downside of riding a bike as a private investigator. 
Of course, following a lead in the pouring rain would be even worse. Keeping as much distance as possible, Lara followed Anita's car as it weaved mechanically in and out of traffic, finding the most efficient route. The drive to the cozy community of Tacoma Park on the border of Northeast DC and Maryland took about 15 minutes. Anita's car parked itself on Laurel Street in front of the Tacoma Park Post Office. After climbing out of the back seat, Anita went into the post office building. In full view of the entrance, Lara waited patiently a block away with her engine idling. After a few minutes, Anita came back out with a thick stack of mail under her arm. Instead of returning to her car, she walked down Carroll Street for a few blocks until she arrived at a storefront. Anita paused for a moment and turned her head to see if anyone followed her. Then she ducked into a small coffee shop. Lara parked her bike, dismounted, and grabbed her newspaper from the seat compartment. Crossing the street, she made her way toward the, a park bench next to an old stone church directly across from the coffee shop. She sat and opened the newspaper to hide her face, then put on the digispec she'd stolen from Vic's desk. The thin room glasses provided full internet con connectivity and displayed useful information about objects within her line of sight. Other advanced features included camera and zoom lens. The glasses could be operated over her smartphone, a Bluetooth keyboard, or voice recognition software. Enter command, zoom in, Lara said under her breath. The camera zoomed in. Peering around the side of her newspaper, she had an unbelievably close-up view of the coffee shop. Enter command, record. Too bad it can't pick up sound from behind glass. Inside the cafe, Anita sat at a table across from a man who looked to be in his 60s. His hair was mostly gray with a bit of brown. He had a slender frame and wore a corduroy suit jacket with patches sewn onto the arms. So, that's Fiddler, the man behind the Beatles, and Sully's former client. What does he know about Sully's killer? Anita slid the mail across the table to her father, who sipped his coffee and glanced anxiously out the window as if he were looking for someone. His eyes locked in her position and chills spread throughout her body. For a moment, she thought Fiddler had spotted her. Through the magnification of the digispecs, she detected a flicker in his blue-gray eyes, a flash of anger. Her hair stood on end. Does he know I'm here? She still didn't trust the digispec glasses. Maybe he's tracking the usage somehow. Her heart pounding, Lara hid herself behind the newspaper. After a few seconds, she peeked cautiously over the edge of the newspaper. Fiddler appeared to be in deep conversation with his daughter, no longer paying any attention to things outside the shop. I must be imagining things again. After about 30 minutes, the atmosphere between Anita and Fiddler appeared to deteriorate. Anita threw up her hands in the air and seemed to be speaking in a raised voice. Fiddler crossed his arms and scowled at his daughter and then shook his finger at her. Suddenly, Anita got up from the table, exited the coffee shop in a huff, and marched back to her car, slamming the door shut. Her face was contorted with rage, and tears streamed down her cheeks. A few minutes later, Fiddler got up from the table and disappeared toward the back of the store. Anita drove away, and Lara waited on the bench for about 20 minutes, expecting Fiddler to exit through the front door. He never did. Crap. She had waited too long and lost her lead. Folding up the newspaper and shoving the digispecs into her pack, Lara jogged across the street toward the cafe. The bell hanging at the top of the door rang merrily as she entered. The barista at the counter looked up at her and smiled. Lara surveyed the cafe. Except for a couple patrons sipping their coffee and staring at their computer screens, the cafe was empty. She walked toward the back of the store and pushed open the door to the men's room. Also empty. 
Lara walked back to the counter and ordered a nice coffee. Rob would laugh at me if he saw this. Of course, the purchase was just for show. She couldn't quickly gulp down hot coffee, and her throat was still sore from the smoke inhalation. Or maybe iced coffee is growing on me? Nah. She pushed the picture of Fiddler toward the barista. Have you seen this man? His name is John Fiddler. The barista nodded. Sure, John's a regular here. He was actually just here with his daughter. Things got kind of heated this time, and they both stormed off. What were they arguing about? Lara asked. The barista shrugged. Honestly, I tried not to pay attention. Didn't catch that much. Something about a warehouse. I think she was angry about him making her go there. He wanted her to go somewhere else, and she was refusing. Did you overhear where? Maybe the Chesapeake Bay? Do you know where he went? Lara asked. Oh, he left back out back a, a half an hour ago. The barista pointed to the kitchen. Damn it. The barista continued. Every time he asks one of us if he can leave through the back door. He tips us so well, so we let him do it. What's the harm, right? Do you know anything about him? Lara asked. The barista shrugged. Not really. He meets up with his daughter here like clockwork every two weeks. Nice guy, but somewhat strange. That's all I know. Thanks for the info, Lara said, gulping down the rest of her coffee and dumping the plastic cup into the trash. Outside the coffee shop, there was no sign of Fiddler. It was as if he had vanished into thin air. Lara headed over to the post office to see if she could get any information on Fiddler's post office box account. As she pulled open the glass door, she didn't expect the Tacoma Park post office to be so small. Lara knew the U.S. Postal Service was phasing out all of its remaining postal workers and replacing them with automated machines, which lined an entire wall in the, the next room. Hours had been cut back severely, and the quality of customer service had suffered. She'd grown tired of the messy piles of mail tossed in the slot of her townhouse. At the small, bulletproof kiosk, a frazzled and overworked postal worker handled a long line of impatient customers who were stopping on their lunch hour to buy stamps and send packages. Lara scanned the rows of metal post office boxes, which were located on several adjacent walls in the back corner next to the automated machines. She studied them for a few minutes, wondering which one might belong to Fiddler, when a familiar waft of floral fragrance passed by her nose and made her sneeze. Bless you, a voice said from behind her, causing her to jump slightly. She turned to see Justine standing there, her head tilted and her arms crossed. Dressed in her usual black, Burberry trench coat, sunglasses, and Louis Vuitton shoes, Justine was stunning, as usual. Her black hair was tied up in a neat bun, and her skin was flawless. Lara checked the status of her own hair in the reflection of the post office window and shuddered. Okay, not my finest moment. She shook off her insecurity and smiled. Justine, what are you doing here? I could ask the same of you. Justine's voice had a shrill edge to her. She narrowed her pierced piercing blue eyes. I have to say, I'm a bit disappointed in you. I thought we were working the case together, and you haven't called me since I visited you in the hospital, and now I see you're out tracking down leads again. Lara gave her an apologetic look. Yeah, um, sorry, I've been kind of busy. That's okay. I'm just giving you a hard time, Justine smirked, relaxing her shoulders. The sudden change in demeanor gave Lara a chill. How did your visit to the Botox clinic work out? Lara gave her an uncertain smile. Really good. We got our first big lead. Thank you for getting us in to see Dr. Grayson so quickly. We definitely owe you one. Great. I'm so glad. Justine lowered her voice to a whisper. Did you learn anything interesting? Lara hesitated for a minute. 
Yeah, we discovered the source of the botulinum toxin that killed Sully. It's a cosmetic supply company called Beautific Creations. Wow, you weren't kidding about big leads. That's huge news. Do you have a suspect? Lara nodded. We think Linda Maxwell, the company owner, was behind the theft of the toxin and possibly Sully's death. If we're lucky, maybe we'll learn that she's involved in your colleague's death as well. Justine leaned in toward Lara. Her interest peaked. And did the FBI apprehend a suspect yet? Lara shook her head. No, she escaped without a trace. The FBI is still digging through the warehouse, though. Perhaps we'll get another lead on her whereabouts. We think she had an accomplice. Justine raised her eyebrow. Oh, really? Do you think it could have been Stepanov? Not sure. We saw a black BMW convertible on the scene when we arrived, but we checked the place. And it belonged to Linda. But someone else drove it away, so... Justine gaped at her. I'm pretty sure Stepanov drives the same car. Huh? Interesting coincidence. Did Stepanov try to run me down? Lara's eyes narrowed. By the way, how did you know to find me at this post office? By coincidence, actually. I was inside the cafe watching Anita meet with her father, and then I saw you sitting out on the park bench doing the same thing. I ducked into the women's restroom when you entered the cafe in case Fiddler was watching us. Then I followed you into the post office, hoping we could catch up. I never checked the women's room. Rookie mistake. But why would you? How did you? Lara stuttered, unable to finish a thought. I've been tracking Anita's movements for a while. At first, I thought she might have had something to do with her husband's death. Maybe she found out about our affair and had someone run her husband off the road. Anita would never cause an accident with her son in the car. Lara's eyes grew large. So you're, you're Frank is Anita's husband? Justine nodded. I didn't tell you that up front? Lara shook her head and said nothing for a moment as she absorbed the information. You also never mentioned that before he died, Frank came under suspicion by the NSA for leaking the classified information, or that authorities suspected Anita to be his accomplice for several months. Justine clenched her jaw and bared her teeth. I didn't tell you because it's not worth mentioning. Complete bullshit. Her eyes flashed with fury. She looked like she might kick something. The agency wasn't interested in the truth. Instead, NSA officials misconstrued the evidence and then made up a bunch of lies about Frank to protect the agency's reputation in the press. She took a deep breath, trying to calm herself. My Frank was a true patriot, and he would have never betrayed his country. If anything, he died because he was trying to expose the real traitor, Cybershop. But the NSA seemed inter seems interested in the truth now, Lara said. I mean, if they assigned you to the case and asked you to collaborate with the FBI... Yes, but only because the links continue to happen, not because they want to clear Frank's name. That's why I volunteered to help. I want to make things right for Frank. Lara crinkled her nose. I still don't understand why you're spying on Anita and Fiddler. Good question. I quickly dismissed my theory about Anita and began to wonder about her unstable father as a potential suspect for Frank's death. John is definitely capable of murder. Maybe he killed Sully too. Justine paused and st studied Lara's face for a few seconds. Anyway, after following Anita around for months, I knew she picked up his mail and met with him every two weeks. I'd stopped spying on their meetings two months ago, but working with Special Agent Martin and hearing about the bionic bugs, it occurred to me that John might be the one sending those nasty beetles after you. So I decided to check him out again. At the very least, John knows something about Cybershop. But why would Fiddler kill Frank? Lara asked flatly. Justine shrugged. I don't know. Maybe he found out about Frank's affair with me? 
Lara furred, her brow shaking her head. I don't think F Fiddler killed Frank or Sully, but you're right, he's definitely capable of something. Did you overhear anything interesting in the cafe? Justine shook her head. Not really. I had to sit in the back corner because the tables next to theirs were already full. I couldn't make out any words until they began fighting. Anita was angry about with her father about tricking her to drive out to some warehouse. John said he wanted to prove to her that they were still in danger from an NSA analyst posing as Cybershop. Do they have any idea who Cybershop is? Lara asked. Justine moved her head from side to side. I heard their attempt to learn Cyber's identity got short by something. I didn't catch that part. Toward the end, it sounded like John was trying to warn Anita about something he was planning. He urged her to leave town to go out to the Chesapeake Bay and stay with her mother-in-law for a few days. Not sure why. Anita became agitated. She argued with him, refused, and then left in a hurry. Would Anita skip town? Lara was too tired to hide her dismay. Every time she made progress on the case, she hit a wall. Would you be less disappointed if I told you I got Fiddler's street address from the postal worker? What? How did... Lara was baffled. I flashed my Department of Defense badge and the postal worker gave me the information. Justine smiled triumphantly. Lara grimaced. You're not supposed to give out that information. She glanced at the postal worker, who looked exhausted and worked to the bone. Well, I got it, Justine shrugged. Do you want to come check it out with me or not? She turned on her heel toward the exit. Lara nodded er eagerly and followed her, but something caught her eye through the glass window. A strange metallic glimmer. Wait, Lara said, grabbing Justine's arm right before she opened the door. What? Justine looked back at her, brow furrowed. Do you see what I see? Lara pointed to the large maple tree next to the park bench where she'd been sitting. A swarm of metallic beetles flew around in circles at the top of the tree, glistening in the sun. Those aren't... Like the beetle you found, are they? Justine asked. Yes, that's a swarm of bionic bugs, Lara's voice quivered. Fiddler has been using his beetle to spy on me. Apparently now he's using swarms. He must know we're here. And something tells me that swarm might be dangerous. We have to get out of here, now. Oh my god, Justine cringed and her face went pale. Lara motioned to her. Come, we need to slip out the back. Lara walked calmly to the back entrance and opened the door. Justine followed closely behind. Before exiting, Lara looked all around for any metallic gold color. I don't see anything out here. But just to be safe, I don't think we should hang around for much longer. Do you have wheels? Justine shook her head. No, I took a cab. Do you mind riding on the back of my bike? Sure. It's not what I had in mind for our first driving lesson, but anything to get me out of here. And fast. Come on, let's go. Lara raced around the back of the shop toward her bike. She was thankful she'd parked only a block away from the post office. Behind her, Justine was struggling to keep up in her high heels. Serves her right for wearing those silly stilettos. As soon as Lara mounted the bike, she revved her engine. With some effort, Justine finally climbed on the back of the bike and grabbed Lara tightly around the waist. Gunning the engine, Lara sped away, dodging in and out of traffic as fast as she could get as far away from the Beatles as possible. She had no idea what kind of range they had and didn't want to find out. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
forward slash Natasha Badgema. See you next week.